The Book of Romans, laying a solid foundation by Rev. Paul Bucknell. The Living Commentary, chapters 9 through 16. This is the third of three lectures given in Nigeria to a group of pastors. An overview of the Book of Romans. This has been produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. Feel free to make most use of these resources on the Book of Romans and other biblical books. Study questions, commentaries, and many handouts. Well, how do you enjoy the feast? Going through the Book of Romans. It's just so much. I think if you just open up the Book of Romans and read through it, you know, let God begin to speak into you and you see it as a whole. It begins to powerfully, powerfully strengthen your own vision. Not only for your own personal life, but for your ministry. I find it's always this. When, when I'm teaching... I'm not only teaching you how to apply Romans for your own life. I hope that you're also processing this so you later know how to teach Romans to others. Even though this is just an introduction, it serves as a solid foundation for our lives and ministry. So today, let's continue on this third lecture and last of the book of Romans from 9 to 16. We will necessarily go quick through 9 to 11 so we can talk a little more on 12 to 16. Romans, uh, we're going through each one. Righteousness revealed, the cross. Righteousness obsolete, the ditch. Righteousness made, the road. Righteousness attained, arrow up. Righteousness enlarged, two arrows going this way. And righteousness spread. It's like God's kingdom coming down on earth. So let's bow our heads in prayer as we continue. Lord, we thank you so much for the powerful word of God. We come, Lord, in the great name of Jesus. We declare that you are just so wonderful. You have declared us righteous in Christ, that we can come and pray. Imagine we human beings being able to talk to the eternal God, shaping the future, shaping the present. And now, Lord, hear our prayers. Make us all the more the men and women of God we need to be for your glory. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. From Romans chapter 1 through 5, we're looking how we wondered, how can we get to chapter 12 and 16? There were a number of things in between that we had to discuss. In chapters 1 through 5, it's how does one become righteous? Chapters 12 to 16, how does one live a righteous life? Now, we talked about 6 to 8 in part. We talked about Abraham's faith, the second Adam, the olive tree, all those blessings. But before we go into 12 to 16, I want to discuss the world. This is where the righteousness is enlarged. Paul had a difficulty, and that difficulty was convincing people that you needed to spread the gospel to everyone. Now, his problem facing all these Jews was somewhat different than ours. But their problem is not much unlike our situation. Because often we think of the gospel this way. We're spreading the kingdom of God upward under us. To us, that's the kingdom. And just so God's kingdom gets bigger under us, we're happy. Bigger church. Greater pastor. But that's never content God. He wants us to train people in such a way that his kingdom is going outward. Not necessarily under our authority, but it's going further out. And we see that with the Apostle Paul. A great gift of going places, starting churches, and leaving churches. Putting men in charge of those churches. Well, we're proclaiming and defending the truth of God. And in this fifth section, the world. The enlarging, the extending out. 
We're talking about how God makes his name great by spreading his grace to the whole world. It had to go beyond the Jews. The Jews were not convinced of that. It has to go beyond our borders. And sometimes we're not very convinced of that. How has God made the proclamation of Christ's righteousness mandatory? Now, I'm going to basically go through here rather quickly because I just don't have time to further amplify it. But in verses 9 through 1 to 13, Paul has a great compassion for Israel. There's no doubt about it. We see, he says, I'm telling the truth, chapter 9, verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience is with me. I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief for Israel, his people. And that's how we should have a great compassion and burden for the people. It is extended to God and the way God puts truth in everybody. He wants the truth to go outward. But there is something that we need to know here, and that is God is faithful. God's word did not fail. The question is people asking, all right, if you're saying God chose Israel, then how come not all Israel is chosen? And so basically they're questioning whether God is faithful. But in verse 6, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. They are not all Israel who descended from Israel. This helps us to understand a few things. One is the Old Testament and the New Testament connection, as well as how do you understand those people who are part of our congregation, who profess belief, but they leave the faith. How do you explain that? And Paul is saying, God is faithful. It is not as though the word of God failed. Now we can see this through because of his illustration that he gives, both in Isaac and Rebekah having twins. Remember their names? Jacob and Esau. Or I should say Esau and Jacob. But it was the second born, not the first born, that was chosen. It was through Jacob that God's descendants would come, not through Esau. Now, Esau, by the way, was the father of Edom. If you ever read that in the Old Testament, E-D-O-M. So all those people there, uh, many, many tribes came from Edom. Uh, it was the same for Isaac, and he, it wasn't through Ishmael. Uh, even now, a lot of the tribes that belong to Muslims came out of that whole sector. They believe in Abraham. They believe in the scriptures. But they're kind of blind to how it fulfills. Even though they say they believe in the Gospels. The Muslims says right in the Quran that they believe in the Gospels. So you can always use that uh, to help preach to them. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He goes on and the question of election comes in. And I don't know where you come in. and I, I don't know many of you. In, in America, pastors believe all different things. So I'm, I'm not trying to be contentious here. But it is important for us to realize that when God has mercy, he will have mercy on those people he desires. God doesn't have to save everybody. He doesn't have to save anyone. He proves that to us when the angels fell. He did not have to save the angels. In fact, he didn't. When the angels fell, Lucifer and the others, they were eternally condemned. The same could have been true with mankind, but he had mercy. But he can harden, and that verse, I'm looking at 18 to 20, he hardens whom he desires. He has mercy on whom he desires. When we look at 18 to 20, it brings us back to Romans 1.18, and when we were talking there, the whole process to the end. God gave them over. When God hardens, you can probably best look at it as God just lets them go. They want to 
go into more sin. And God just after a while just lets them go. He doesn't do anything. There's no redeeming work, no special work. He just lets them go. Pardoning to me, as after all these years, I best understand it in that sense. He just gives them over to their own desires. And their own judgment will follow them. But certainly, he does have mercy on those he has mercy. And if we just summarize it quickly, um, just skipping over Isaac, the discussion of Esau and, and Jacob there. In verse 23, he says, And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. One of the great reasons God is saving you and me is to show his mercy, to show his compassion. He did that. He wants to display the riches of his glory. If God never saved us, nobody would really know the depths of his love and compassion. It would be hidden away. They would know about his wrath. They would know about his righteousness. But they wouldn't know about his compassion. So what God did was this. I want everyone to see my love and compassion. Now this doesn't impress our image at all. I'm going to choose the worst of worst people. But I'm going to do the greatest things among them. They will be my trophies. They will be the people I shine up. If anyone wants to know what my love is like, I'll point to that brother and that sister. Ah, then you will know what my love is like. Then you'll see my compassion. See, God is concerned mostly about his own glory. And his glory is when he displays who he fully is. And even back when he said, I am Jehovah, revealing himself to Moses. I am that righteous... God who will bring judgment, and but I'm also that God who brings compassion. And this is where, how in his great process in his plan, he's revealing his glory. And we find that even the church and all the work he does in us is not primarily for us, it's for him. All the glory goes to him. Now we are blessed because we're part of that plan. It's humbling and yet wonderful. I have always been touched in my heart. Why would God say someone like me? Well, it's to show his forth his glory. But it's amazing that he could do anything in my life. As we go on in verse 24 of chapter 9, he talks about including all the Gentiles in his plan. He uses a lot of Old Testament scriptures. 27 and 32, again insisting he chooses whoever he wills. And there he's emphasizing, um, I can choose the Gentiles if I want. You know, you Jewish people, you are so stubborn. Yeah, but, hey, I have chosen, and, it's, and he used the Old Testament to prove it, that all the nations, I'm going to display my righteous and my glory, my love, through all the nations. Now, the Jews didn't want to hear that. Just like we would say, God, don't save our enemies. They're burning our houses. Hold it. No, I want to do a work in them. And it's just marvelous when I go to the different nations, I read reports what God's doing in some of these nations. Uh, among the Muslims, so many are coming to know the Lord. The Hindus. Ah, it's just wonderful. You know, he's reaching the very ends of the earth. Nothing's stopping God. You know, actually, in the book of Romans, he doesn't talk much about the second coming. Did you notice that? Yeah, some yes, some no. He didn't. But he does. But in a different way. But let me, before I get into it, let me just talk about 10, chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. He says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 
For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. I say this to my friends and to my people who I don't have hope for, really. But I tell them, I can't help you. You're in a very desperate situation. But I do know this promise. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Yes. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. We found it. So many cases. Unbelievable changes in people's lives. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's what the scripture says. It's in Christ. We know it's not in any God. It's in, in Christ alone. 13 to 17, he goes on and talks about how the preacher is sent. The preacher speaks. The people hear the gospel. People call upon the Lord. People believe in Christ. God uses us. You see, God just doesn't save us to live righteous lives. He also equips us with his spiritual gifts and then sends us out. Amen. Who am I to preach the word of God? Who are you? Oh, it's just so amazing. We can go out the streets on the corner. Jesus can save you. He can take away all your sin. Believe in him. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Doesn't matter on the financial situation. Doesn't mean they lost their job and their wife just died or their child is sick. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It's the honor of us to preach the glory of God. We are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In chapter 11, he talks about five different reasons did not reject the chosen Israelites. And this is where he does talk about the second coming a little bit. This, this is how you understand it. Some people don't understand how the Old Testament connects with the New Testament. Chapter 11 is wonderful to help us. Think of a tree. And this is basically verses 11 to 25. Think of a tree. He also gives an illustration of some bread. So if, if your wife's out there, you're making some bread or something. He gives an illustration of a tree. Illustration of bread. Same same picture. Take a piece of that dough out. It's going to represent the whole, isn't it? There's a tree here, and it has the roots. Whatever is in that root, it's going to be affected by the whole. Now, in the Old Testament, he chose God's people. And from there, he chose the Israelites. Now, if they didn't believe in him, he would just snap off their branches. Now, the Gentiles, like us, he would take their branches, because they believe in Christ, and he would stick them in that tree. So it's Jew and Gentile, all part of the same holy tree in Christ. Sometimes you read in the Old Testament, a sprout you know, will grow up. And, and that's what it's talking about. And in verse 26 to 32, it says, all Israel will be saved. Now it seems like in the very end here of chapter 11, not quite the end end, but verses 26 to 32, I, I just love, and you can read more of my discussion on it there in the book. He says... The Gentiles will stay there as long as they believe. But if, you, if the Gentiles harden their hearts, they'll be plucked off. Now, I don't think he's talking about losing salvation. I'm just thinking like, like in our generation, in, in my church, neighborhood, for example, there's churches there. There used to be a lot of churches. But the churches stopped believing in the gospel. They stopped believing in Christ and the Bible. So there's still a big church, but it's empty. What happened? They were broken off. The Spirit of God, like in Revelation chapter 2 to 3, no longer there. They might have 20 people that meet there, but they can believe anything they want. This will happen to any generation that you do not disciple the young people. If you don't train them in Romans, they're going to end up as pagans in the end. If you don't teach your own children, forget it. 
You have to make sure they have a heart and love for Christ, not just a religiosity. Don't, don't depend on that. You have to disciple them. I, I meet with my children every night I'm home. We have a family gathering. We're reading together the scripture, memorizing them. I'm talking right now, we're going through the book of Galatians. And I'm asking them questions. They're a little bit older now. I can ask them questions. You read, you ask, I ask, you answer. Challenge them. Because in the end, I realize, wow, if I'm not training my children to be greater than me, I missed it. I don't want to just, oh, religion is like our own. Actually, some of my older children were saying, you know, Daddy, uh, this is my young, uh, my number three and four that were just baptized. They said, you know, this was just normal to us, just going to church and everything. But we realize it's something more special. You see, they have to go through that awareness, don't they? There's something changing within them. Yeah, this is my belief. God saved me. And sometimes if we're not careful, we just assume, make them assume they're all part of it, when they're really not part of it. We have to help them to see it's special for them. But as I was going on and talking about the second coming and what's to happen at the very end, the only thing he says here in 25 and 26, I do not want you to be, brethren, to be, chapter 11, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. Now what the key is is this, several things. First of all, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Now, that can mean several things. Most uh, Israelites, Jewish people today, still all over the world, are not believing. So it's only partial hardening. But it says it will only happen up to a certain point. Up to a certain point until when? Verse 25. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It seems like this. When God has gone all around the world, saving all these different cultures, all these people in Benin City, all these people up in Arisa, India, I was up either side of the Himalaya mountain uh, this uh, last fall, preaching. And it's God's doing work among the Bangladesh and the Bengali-speaking people in India. This is the largest unreached people group. But the gospel's surging up. You know, these guys, just, you know, I, I don't know if they should be pastors, but in nine months they're becoming pastors. They have such zeal. And, uh, you know, we want to start 100 house churches this year. Okay, you only have 10. That's a big vision. How are you going to do it? Oh, God will help us. Amen. More faith than me. Okay, they got more faith than me. But you see what God's doing. But when I go beyond Himalayas, I know in Nepal there's already a lot of Christians. I went to the one of churches. And the Nepal's are helping the Bengalese to come to know the Lord. They're great for personal sharing the gospel. And if you go beyond there, that's China. Well, I know God's doing lots in China. No, he's reached the Chinese. Oh, well, who else needs to be saved? Well, what we'll find right now is as the world seems to be coming closer and closer to maybe one world government, is what we find is the gospel actually has gone to almost all the nations. Nations being every ethnic group. He's reaching all the people, all the tribes. And then, it seems like at that point, God might work in Israel like he worked in the beginning. In one day, four or five thousand came to know the Lord. Remember that? Yes. And then he just bring, I don't know how it's going to end. And then he's going to just bring us all together serving him. Maybe it'll be worldwide persecution. Maybe not. I don't know. He doesn't say anything like that here. All he says is the plan, the kingdom plan, which all should push us out 
spreading the gospel more and more. When Paul, he concludes here about this mystery, he is so touched. Listen to verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's our great God. And from there, he moves into chapter 12. Now remember, chapter 6 to 11, he could have missed out. But the important part there is always to remember, no, if we are not careful in isolating falsehood and error, then it will grow around us. We have to be careful and identify falsehood and error, just like Paul did, so that we can think rightly about our own righteous living, we can think rightly about God's kingdom growing. Now, if you're building up a big, big church for yourself, think again. Start thinking about building a church further out. Expand. You be a missionary church. You start sending out missionaries. Finish the gospel. Send them to the north. Send them to other countries. And I know you're doing that. I see some Nigerian missionaries in America. <laughs> and we need it. Actually, we need it. But, you know, God's doing all those mighty, wonderful things. But there's probably even more places that need it than America. Because our nation is one of those people that have rejected the gospel. Hardened ourselves. And God gave us forward. And you can see our filth on TV. If you see our TV. I don't watch TV. I hope you don't watch it. I don't watch it. If I let my sons watch it, they're watching 1960 program. Black and white. You see? You get it? There's something that happened in America, and it went like this. If you allow them to watch all those things, they will be polluted by the world, and you won't get them back. Romans 12 to 16. God's name is glorified by his people living out righteous life. We'll spend the rest of our time just thinking about this. And the question here is, how are God's people to live out God's righteousness in this world? The vision, you know, from all the beginning, what we've heard, nothing needs us to stop us from having a righteous life. Your question was wonderful. You know, can we grow in our righteousness? You know, does it stop? No, it keeps growing. And, and it goes, as long as we grow closer to God, our righteousness will grow. You want to get closer to God? Stop compromising. You've given up something? He wants you to give up? You give it up. It says you draw, take a step closer to God, God will take a step closer to you. And, and that's the whole point. That there's nothing for the holding back the Spirit of God working through our life. Joshua, by the way, is a paradigm, is that it's a picture for all of us to live out in our lives today. Joshua, where he went into the land and he could conquer everything, but he didn't conquer everything. He wanted everyone to take their part and conquer out all the enemies. He did it. Now, this is a picture of us and the way we need to live righteousness and get at every aspect in our life. And I hope when we see the Spirit of God doing that, He's more and more glorified through our life and He can use us. He starts off in chapter 12, just like the Ten Commandments, with God. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing your mind, by the truth that we just read, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So it's talking about proving what the will of God is, living it out, living out that righteous life. How? Renewing your mind. 
unless your mind is renewed, you're going to be shaped by your old thoughts, your old thoughts about God, your old thoughts about the Bible, your old thoughts about the world, whatever. You need to be renewed. We constantly remain renewed. And I personally, every day, I meet with God in the Word. I meet several times with Him in the Word. I'm going through Genesis, and I started the book of Daniel. I just finished Isaiah. And I'm just going through them. God, what are you teaching me? God, oh, Esau gave up his right. No, Lord, keep me in my heart. Is that personal pursuit of God that has to go on and on. Unless you pursue God, what does it show of your heart? I don't want to know God. You don't want to know me? All right. But you could. You could. That's what 12 to 16 is all about. This is what this is all about. Renewing your mind. And it renewed by the scriptures. And it's so powerful when we understand what that is. Can we just stand and just dedicate ourselves to the Lord right now? I know you dedicate yourself many a time. But if you feel free, can we just say, Lord, just uh, use us as your people. Just stand with me. Let's pray. I urge you, he says, brethren, present your bodies. Let's present our bodies to him. A living and holy sacrifice. Let us pray. Almighty God, we just come. We know you are the great sacrifice. You sent your son to die for us. But here you tell us to be the living sacrifice, O Lord. That your spirit might fully work in our lives. And so, Father, hear our prayer, O Lord. Not that we're perfectly attained to what you have called us. But, Lord, we're striving. We're moving along. And now move us along faster, Lord. For the time, the end of time is coming quickly. Move us forward, Lord, that the gospel might, as a fire, go throughout Nigeria, throughout the world, into the Jewish people. And, Lord, bring all bring glory to your name. In Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Two things, he says. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Two instructions to help us to know how to prove what the will of God is, how to live out that righteous life. Now, we have a big challenge. If you notice, he spends two verses talking about how to live in light of God and his truth. Romans 12, 1 to 2. He spends the rest of the verses, 12 to 16, talking about how to live with mankind. Perhaps it's a little more difficult saying, I love God, it's harder to say, I love that person when I don't really love him too much. Now, we'll get more into that, especially in our second session tomorrow, what that love really means. But as we look through chapter 12, verse 3 to 8, first of all, we find that he's talking about how to carry out that love in the body, how to carry out that love in the body. Uh, for example, in 3 to 8, he talks about spiritual gifts. For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ. Now notice here, he, he includes gifts of serving, of leading, of teaching. Not just ones that we would esteem, but some of the ones you don't often lift up as much. What he's saying that God esteems them all. It's the Spirit of God working through them. And as much as you help your people understand their gifts and to do it for the glory of God, through the power of God, God works mightily. Many members, not all the same function. We don't all have to make them pastors. No, no, they won't all be pastors. But we need them as they need us. By the way, this truth also I highlight in marriage. It might help you understand how much you need your spouse. I found that really changes how I approach my marriage. I'll share more another time. 
But uh, if you're all members of one another, and there's nothing like a husband and wife being, you know, two as one, uh, you really need each other. When this truth touches your heart, it, it brings a change that you might not expect. A good change. In verses 9 to 21, he goes on, talking about our obligation to one another. Now, what is righteous living? He defines it for you. Love is without hypocrisy. In other words, you really care about one another. You're not just saying you do. You actually abhor what is evil. Love does not mean what it means to many people. Toleration of anything. No, it doesn't mean we tolerate evil. We abhor evil. That means we hate evil. We cling to what is good. We're devoted to one another in brotherly love. We're fervent. We're serving. This is the way it is with God's people. Devoted to one another. Giving preference to one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. I met one brother, Clarence. He was so confused. Had so many questions. He was from the Caribbean. And he said, well, what about the law? He couldn't understand that if you focused on carrying out love, the law you, do, you just leave far behind. The law is like a perimeter. It keeps you within the bounds. You go near the bounds and it, it says you've gone too far. But when you focus on love, you're in the middle, going through the heart, doing all of God's will, like it says in 12, proving what the will of God is. And that becomes so special and good. Chapter 13 is talking about living in the world. Let every person be in subjection to governing authorities. I know in our country they're talking about increasing more taxes and things like this. But here he says, well, it's hard on you guys. And you have a choice. You can complain or not give, but you're going to face consequences. Or you can realize, I made the governors. I put them in charge. And you need to give taxes to them? Yeah. They ask for them, give them to them. This is chapter 13. Sometimes we don't feel like it. We don't want to. But this is righteousness. This is the way you can glorify God. And when you do it with a cheerful heart, actually, you realize, hey, this is just his money anyways. Uh, he's in charge. Our neighbors, chapter 13, 8 to 14. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of our law. So he's telling how to live in the world with the government, early chapter 13. How do you live with your neighbors you're around your street? You know, they don't know the Lord. Uh, but you're still kind to them. You don't do wrong to them. You're trying to help them. Nor are you like that partying world that you sometimes feel around you. Not carousing, verse 13. Not drunkenness, no sexual promiscuity or sensuality. You just stay away from all that. And if that's what you have on a screen or your radio, turn it off. Yeah. I turn my children's radio off too, by the way, if I need to. Chapter 14 is living with others within the church. This is where it gets a little more difficult. Remember, the church back then had a lot of Jews and Gentiles. It would be like here if maybe half of you are from one tribe, maybe half from another tribe. or You, you, you come from different angles on different perspectives. In this situation, some of them had the law, some of them didn't. Some of them thought you could eat certain things, while some thought you shouldn't eat those things. If you want to be righteous, in other words, they said, well, you shouldn't eat those things. But the other people said, no, it's okay, we can. Yeah, it says in the scripture you can. How do you get together? How do you think you avoid the I'm better than you? Well, this is what chapter 14 is all about here and how we shouldn't judge one another. Not judging one another does not mean that we don't discern where other brothers and sisters are at and help them. 
Judging talks about not being prideful, looking down on another person's opinion. Let him live out his life in light of how God speaks to him. That's okay. Just so he's loving one another. But, as I said, there's the outward perimeters. But he's talking about things that might be right, might be wrong. Uh, you might want to wear a hat. You might want to wear a tie. You might want to do this or that. Those okay. But whatever you do, do in light of your conscience. And don't be in contempt, as it says in verse 3 there, of others. For God's accepted them. If God accepted them, we need to accept them. And we need to love them. Actually, this is an opportunity to love them. And to show others how we love them. Uh, I belong to Oakland International Fellowship. It's a fellow congregation from the Chinese. Uh, but we have people from all the different nations with us. Uh, from Burma, from India, from Africa... Uh, all around the world, many from China. So, but uh, we use English language. But, you know, people from different languages, you know, we eat different things, different customs, different ways of perceiving. But we need to learn how to get along. As we can kind of come to a conclusion in 15 and 16, we talk about accepting one another, verse 7 to 9, chapter 15. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. Paul is coming to his close, and he's finishing up some of his purposes. One of his purpose was to what? Preach to the Jew. Defend the gospel to the Jew. Another, though, was to be able to get the gospel out to the nations, because that was his apostleship. And notice all throughout Romans, he was underlaying a foundation, a, theo a theological Old Testament quotations, building up why all of us should be preaching the gospel to the, all the people. And so this is God's call for us. Actually, uh, Paul seemed to be coming to an end and then going on again. Maybe something like I've been doing today. But, you know, in chapter 15, verse 13, there's three benedictions. How many benedictions do you give after your sermon? Do you have one benediction, then you preach more? Another benediction, you preach more, then a third benediction? Okay, that's it. <laughs> uh, that's what he did here in Romans. Uh, 1513, 1533, and then 1625 to 27. Three benedictions. Uh, he had a hard time coming to a close. He was also sharing how he wanted to visit them and was going to visit them. He has plans to visit them on his way to Spain. He said, you know, actually, guys, you're doing fine there in Rome. You don't need me. Now, that's pretty humbling of a great apostle like Paul. You got my letter? That's good enough. Now, I'm making plans to go on to Spain. I'll stop through for a couple of days, maybe a week, but I'm going to Spain. They need to hear the gospel. That's a hard commitment to keep going on. But that's something we see in the Apostle Paul, a rigorous devotion to spreading the gospel around the world. What have we talked about in Romans? Proclaiming and defending God's great plan to establish his righteousness through the gospel of Jesus Christ in all his people, Jews and Greeks. We know it's not just about saving us from our sin. That's only half the story. You can't say that's the gospel. You're saving, God saving us is so we can live and will live righteous lives. Not just us, but all people around us. And so God works in us, in our righteous life, to spread the gospel further. Now go with me to the uh, six figures we have, okay? 
The gospel is the cross. Then the ditch, the sin. Then the road. Okay? Then the plan. Then the world. And lastly, the kingdom I haven't emphasized too much is coming down, an arrow down. It's where heaven comes to earth. Well, it's been good talking and sharing with you through the book of Romans. This is just the beginning of, I hope, a lifetime study of the book of Romans. It's a study you can treasure, teach, meditate on. I have meditated uh, so much on the book of Romans, and it has ever delighted me. But it's laying a foundation. And to the degree that you bury these truths in your heart, and that you put them in your people around you, you will find that that foundation is well laid. And that you need not be a workman that is ashamed. Let's pray as we close. Almighty God, we come and we give you thanks. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, for the way that he was willing to move on and go to Spain. Dream about reaching the unreached. We never know if he really got there. But Lord, we pray that we would, all that you accomplished through our life, would be done. That we would live out those righteous lives and bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. We look forward to Christ coming again. And yet, Lord, help us be those hard workers, even enduring hardship and persecution during these times, for your glory. Thank you again, Lord, for my brothers, my sisters here, just to be able to relish this time in the Word of God. In Christ we pray. Amen. This concludes the third lecture on the Book of Romans, an overview. Romans chapters 9 to 16, The World and the Kingdom, by Rev. Paul Bucknell. Produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. Releasing God's truth to a new generation.